I'll begin with a story. One day there was a blind man sitting on the steps of a building with a hat by his feet and a sign that read, I am blind, please help. A creative publicist was walking by and stopped to observe. He saw that the blind man had only a few coins in his hat. He dropped in more coins and without asking for permission took the sign and rewrote it. He returned the sign to the blind man and left. That afternoon the publicist returned to the blind man and noticed that his hat was filled with bills and coins. The blind man recognized his footsteps and asked if it was he who had rewritten his sign and he wanted to know what he had written on it. The publicist responded, nothing that was not true, I just wrote the message a little differently. He smiled and went on his way. The new sign read, today is spring and I cannot see it. I was reflecting on what that touched in me and um, there's this this sense that um, how much we cherish beyond all things living this life fully. And and spring is a really interesting season because it, it just it in all of us there's a part of us that's kind of quivering with it, like the chlorophyll of the green just kind of your body kind of resonates with it. and there's almost like this test of well can I really arrive and be here for this spring? There's one teacher, Munindraji, who no longer is alive, but he was asked uh, what his dharma, what his teachings was, and he, he summed it up in just a short phrase, saying that our path is just to live the life fully. And in a way, if we put aside all idea of religion and just say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean right in this moment to live the life fully? the most profound and precious teachings would all be revealed to live the life fully. So the Buddha in describing really what gets in the way it's not because we might be physically blind or unable to walk or unable to hear or poor it's, it's not the external circumstances so to speak what prevents us from living the life fully is that we have this conditioning to think something's wrong, something's missing, to be at odds with how the life is, so that we're reacting to the moment, not arriving and inhabiting presence right here. So last week I spoke of, kind of, we started exploring fear, because fear is this primary conditioning that we have, as I've described it, that the primal mood of a separate self, if we feel separate, the primal mood is some sense of fear, that something's wrong, something's going to go wrong. And so that conditioning in moments of fear, if we're believing it, in other words, if we're caught in the fear, what I call the trance of fear, where our whole sense of who we are is contracted and we're living in reaction to fear, we're not living the life fully we're basically trying to figure out how to control things so we can feel better. And one of the main ways it takes place is worry. Worry is a great one. I was reading that the Anglo-Saxon, the root meaning of the word worry is to strangle or to choke. (laughs) It's pretty good. It's described as an uneasy, suffocating feeling we often experience in times of trouble, fear, or problems. Another, worry is like a rocking chair. It keeps you busy, but it doesn't get you anywhere. (laughs) And then the last I wanted to share, these are just different definitions. Worry never robs tomorrow of its sorrow. It only saps today of its strength and beauty. So I'd like to continue our reflection, our exploration on this trance of fear. And as we did last week, just to distinguish between the natural arising of biological fear that we're supposed to have, we have to have, we're brain dead if we don't have it, it, it's a tool of survival. The difference between that and this proliferation where we believe our thoughts of something's going to go wrong and, it's, and the fear's not hitched to actually surviving, it's a habit of fear that's from our families and our culture and so on that shrinks our world. So I I call this the body of fear because 
when it becomes habitual, this kind of proliferated um, experience of being caught, our body assumes a certain tightness, certain muscles continually contract so our body's posture shows it. We might not know, like if I asked you, describe what a person looks like when they're afraid, you might not have the language, but you can pick it up in a moment when you see a body in fear. So there's the body and the way it tightens and tenses against danger and the more it's habitual, the more we have this permanent armoring in our body. That's our body's way of thinking we're always in danger and always trying to ward off what's going to go wrong. Similarly, our minds get addicted to this sense of something's wrong and we know what it's like to have these obsessive thoughts. You know, we know what it's like when... um, I've sometimes described that if somebody was whispering in my ear what I say to myself sometimes, I wouldn't put up with it for a moment. It's like this ongoing thing of yada, yada, yada. But, um, so our minds get really addicted and we get addicted to figuring things out. And I talk about this a lot because watch, I watch in myself how many moments there's this kind of compulsion to try to figure something out. And it can get very petty, like, should I go left and then right to get to that destination or should I kind of go straight over and how many lights are there going to be? It's like this constantly trying to control our universe. And then, of course, behaviorally. So many of our behaviors, if we pause and sense what is driving this, it's this habit of something's going to go wrong. And underneath all fear is this sense of a fragility of life. It's like one Zen teacher said, there's this, under our fears, we're trying to protect our existence, protect against loss of others, of our own body, of life. This is Steve Wright, he says, I was hitchhiking the other day and a hearse stopped. I said, no thanks, I'm not going that far. (laughs) (laughs) So, in a way, what guides us in moving through the world is some effort to be safe. There's a sense of unsafe and we're trying to be safe. And our way of trying to get more safe is that we take what I call false refuge. In other words, we each have behaviors and ways of moving through the day to try to soothe us, comfort us, make us feel better, and they don't work. They work maybe temporarily, but they actually lock us more in the trance of fear. Some of you have been with me when I've described the the false refuges that we take in real detail. I'll just mention a few right today that I just to draw our attention to. A big one is that we latch onto work and busyness and productivity as a way. It's like we're treading water so we don't drop into the void. Just keep busy. There's a frightening thing about stopping the busyness and just being with that kind of existential tension, our restlessness. So there's this running away and we do it through our busyness. Another way that we take false refuge, as I talk about a lot, is we blame. We blame others, we blame ourselves. It's like if things feel unsafe or scary, we have to assign fault. And so we blame. And that leads to violence. This is Rita Rudner says, My grandmother was a very tough woman. She buried three husbands. Two of them were just napping. <laughs> but in a, in a um, very powerful way to think about it is that if we keep running from our fear, if we don't face our fear, we cannot begin to heal the violence in this world, that violence comes out of fear. And I read a very interesting study It was describing the climate change that's happening from global warming and how, of course, it's hitting the poorest nations the most dramatically. And they're beginning to find this relationship between when there's all this climate disasters and then economic disaster and how the fear and instability from the economic problems leads to more violence. And and, in these studies they said that there's a 50% more chance of civil war in an African country if it's had a drought the prior year. 
that when we're afraid for our livelihood we become aggressive. And I thought a really interesting piece was that um, there's evidence that, and I'm going to read this from the New York Times, that European witch burnings in past centuries may have resulted from climate variations and resulting crop failures, economic distress, and search for scapegoats. And uh, they tracked witchcraft trials and in the weather in Europe between 1520 and 1770 and found a close correlation. The colder the weather, the more crackdown on witches. When we're scared, we attack, we try to do something. Now here's what's happening right now in Tanzania. They say the murder of elderly women accused of witchcraft is a very common form of homicide. And when Tanzania suffers unusual rainfall, either drought or flooding, witch killings double. When we're afraid, we, rather than just stay and feel the fear, our reflex is to try to do something, to take control. We saw it after 9-11 that it was a horribly scary time and the resp- the, this response was to attack. We don't stay with what's scary, we, have to, we act out very quickly. It doesn't work. It doesn't actually make us safer. Just to say that the affect of fear is a necessary evolutionary response, but the body of fear, this, the ways that we end up acting out and blaming, blaming ourselves, blaming others, attacking are what seems less lethal, staying really busy. But as many of you have heard me say, in the Chinese script the word for busy is the same as the word for heart-killing. Our fear makes it so that rather than staying and transforming and healing the fear, we react and we deepen the problem. Now one of the biggest ways that we fear has to do with self-doubt. Ramana Maharshi said, self-doubt is the last thing to go. Our deepest fear is that something's wrong with me. And a lot of our behavior comes out of some way trying to compensate or take care of that fear that something is wrong with me. The more we tell ourselves what's wrong, the more it generates fear story that I shared on the weekend with, with our intimacy group because of the fear that self-doubt has such a big effect on our capacity to bond with each other. woman walks by a pet store and there's a parrot out at, in, its, in its cage out front. She walks by and the parrot goes, Awk, you're stupid and you're ugly. And she, so she goes, oh, this is strange, but oh well. You must have just heard that inside and she ignores it. The next day, she's walking by the pet store. She's on her way to work. Awk, you're stupid and you're ugly, the same thing. This time she's annoyed and she thinks she should go in and tell the um, pet store owner, but she's too busy, she's in a rush, so she says, okay, just let it go. Sure enough, next day, she's on her way to work, parrot's there. Awk, you're stupid and you're ugly, and this time she's pissed. She goes in, she talks to the owner, he's incredibly apologetic, like really sorry, says she'll do some training with the parrot and so on and so forth, okay. Next day, she's walking by the store. The parrot's out there. Awk, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So what happens to us is, and forgive me for, I mean, it's a little silly, but, but the point is, I do need to make a point out of this, I think. The point is that we get messages very early on that something's wrong. We get it from the culture that we should be more indifferent and we certainly get it from our families that in order to be lovable, acceptable, okay, you need to be special, you need to achieve certain things, behave in certain ways. And then we internalize it. We don't need those voices anymore. We know. You know, when we believe our beliefs about ourselves. When we believe them, when we tell ourselves stories about what's wrong, we directly fuel the biochemistry of fear. Self-doubt makes us afraid because we're vulnerable, we'll be rejected, we'll fail, something will go wrong. So a huge amount of us working 
with fear is beginning to recognize the false refuges, the way that we end up trying to blame others, the way we get hooked on blaming ourselves, the way we actually are running away from the fear itself in any moment. Again, it's like we're treading water like crazy, trying to get things done, trying to control things, trying to figure things out so that we won't just sink down and feel what's here. So the reason that a false refuge is a false refuge is A, it doesn't work. In other words, the productivity or the judgment or the making war doesn't actually make us safer. That's one reason false refuges are false refuges. And the second is that in any moment that we're engaged in those strategies of running away, we can't bring a healing presence that actually transforms our relationship with fear. The very place that we can wake up, you know how one, I think I mentioned last week, one friend says that when fear comes up, it's like this little voice goes off, about to grow, about to grow, like we've hit the edge of our comfort zone. And if we can stay, if we can stay, then we can actually transform our experience. There's a definition of courage that I found really helpful, that courage has nothing to do with not having fear, it has to do with this willingness to stay in the face of fear a little longer, just staying a little longer when the fear's there, not running away. So let's talk about true refuge. In other words, when fear arises, how is it that we can stay in a way that really wakes us up from that trance of a separate, threatened self? I'm going to talk about the three flavors of refuge that are the classic Buddhist refuges, which are the Dharma, which is that we take refuge in presence itself, the actual moment-to-moment experience of what is this moment like, this fearful moment, the actual truth of what's happening. Then we'll be talking about taking refuge in the Buddha, which is actually in the awareness, like recognizing the awakeness and the emptiness of what we are. And then taking refuge in a sangha, which is the field of relationship, all three of which are true refuges because they actually are expressions of the truth of what we are. We can only be freed up by taking refuge in what's true. So we'll explore how that goes. We'll start with Dharma, and that is basically saying when you're frightened, when you feel unsafe, how do you become on the spot present? And there's an equation that I find really helpful, which is that fear times resistance equals suffering. Fear times resistance equals suffering. So when we're afraid, to the degree that we avoid it, tread water faster, run away, that increases our suffering, that actually reinforces the sense that we're endangered. It reinforces the sense of self that's in trouble. Fear times resistance equals suffering. Here's how Kafka put it. He said, you can hold back from the suffering of the world, meaning the shadow deities within our own heart, the suffering out there, you can hold back. You have free permission to do so. And it is in accordance with your conditioning. But perhaps this very holding back is the one suffering you could have avoided. So the liberating practice of this dharma is not holding back from the fear. The acronym that we've been exploring here over this last year that is really the practice of presence is RAIN, R-A-I-N. So we're going to just sense how do we bring RAIN to fear. RAIN, for those of you that haven't been here, is R is recognize. So you recognize, oh, fear is here. And A is allow, that rather than running away, rather than treading water, rather than blaming, rather than anything, okay, let it be here right now. Allow. The I is to investigate and get intimate. It's actually a double I, it's a little cheating, but it's I. 
to investigate what's here. What is this really like? Don't run away. Stay. Feel it. Open to it. Befriend it. The N is like the homecoming to natural awareness rather than the small, contracted self. We reopen to the natural compassion and wisdom. That's who we are. N. So I'm going to give you a, a story that... I think I might have shared a couple of years ago that I think is really an interesting one. Ajahn Chah, who is really one of the, you know, fathers of modern Vipassana, Thai monk, very, very well known in Asia. One of his protégés wrote, wrote a um, biography on him. Now, Ajahn Chah was a very courageous man and he had a deep, deep terror of ghosts. And he also had a fear of corpses. And even after being a monk for some time, he realized he hadn't faced this fear. Now, in Thailand, the fear of ghosts and of corpses is very much thick and deep in the culture. This is not a a small thing. So the the idea of encountering that fear was terrifying to him. Just again, this is a very accomplished, awake man who had this whole area that was like totally frightening that he hadn't dealt with. So he decided to confront it and he went to a burning grounds right outside the village he was visiting and decided to camp there for several days. So that's the deal. He went to this burial grounds and during this time a couple, there were a couple of funerals and cremations. And the first evening at dusk he was there camping and his mind started screaming. And this is what it, he told, uh, that, that his mind was saying, don't be ridiculous, don't do this, it's not good for your samadhi, be reasonable, maybe you can do this later, maybe next year when your practice is more together, then you can face the ghosts and the corpses. So, but he willed himself to stay. So again, some of you might remember 1984, there was that room, do you remember room 101? That's where your very worst fear, whatever it was, whether it's insects creeping into your ears or whatever it is, your very worst fear is in room 101. This was his room 101. So he's, there he is. So the second night, I'm going to read to you the, the way it's described. He heard footsteps, okay, the second night. So there he's camping out and they come louder and closer and his, eye, his eyes are closed and the fear is rising and in his mind's eye he could see the charred body. He could see a skeleton with guts hanging out, the scorched bits of flesh hanging off and he felt this rankness of flesh walking towards him and he told himself, don't believe it, this is just your imagination, stop, be still, concentrate, just be with this and let go. So in the meantime, the footsteps are getting closer and closer. Then he heard steps going around and around him, thump, 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 circling around again and again. By this time, he was in a state of white hot fear. He had gone beyond anxiety. His body was locked solid and sweating bullets. He was absolutely rigid. Then this presence came and stood right in front of him. Ajahn Chah was still determined to keep his eyes closed, not even peek. At this point, he was so completely fear-stricken, it burst. The fear system was going at absolutely full force when suddenly he had this remembering. All these years I've been reciting, the body is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perceptions are impermanent, the body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, mental formations are not self, consciousness is not self, so he wasn't just afraid, he was also very concentrated and very alert. In other words, he was fully present. He was feeling the fear, being with it, and having this remembering of this fear, these thoughts, these feelings aren't me. And then the insight flashed into his consciousness. Even if this is some terrible, ghoulish monster that is going to attack me, all that it can attack is that which is not me. All that it can harm is the body, the feelings the perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. That is the only stuff that can get damaged, and that's not me, that's not self. That which knows all of these cannot be touched. In other words, the awareness that's aware of all of this body and sensations can't be touched. And instantly the feelings of terror evaporated. It was like switching on a light. It disappeared completely and he went into an incredibly blissful state. He went straight from total dukkha, pain and incandescent fear, to extraordinary bliss. His mind was alert and as that happened he heard the footsteps getting fainter. 
eventually they disappeared and he never found out their source. Ajahn Chah sat there without moving until dawn. During the night it poured, tears of rapture ran down his face and mixed with the rain. Nothing in the world could have moved him. Then uh, it's written, comparing that experience of freedom from fear with the abject terror of the first half of the night burned into him the fact that the Buddha is our true refuge. The Buddha mind is our true refuge. So let's look at what freed him. The first part with rain is to recognize and allow. He just got it. This fear is here. I've got this fear. I'm going to face it. It's like he paused. He created a space for that. And he did it by actually going to where the fear would be most triggered. And then he got there and then that's where the get investigating, getting intimate. He let himself feel exactly what was happening. To investigate, it's, there's some interest in investigating that we actually started saying, well, what's this like? What's really going on here? And the intimacy is just absolutely letting go into the fullness of the experience, feeling it. For him, the realization, the more he it just burned through and just his stories collapsed. The more he just felt the fear, the more it was clear that this fear, this body, these sensations aren't the beingness of who I am. They may be currents in this ocean, but they don't define me. They don't define me. So he took refuge in the Dharma, in that presence, and he took refuge in the Buddha in really seeing the emptiness of awareness itself. Now I want to back up a little bit and let's just take each one. Like how do you take refuge in the Dharma? And it's helpful when fear arises, it's helpful to pause and sense the fear as this inner vulnerability, like you would, like it's a child inside, a scared place that's felt in some way threatened, judged, at risk. And just ask, you know, what does this part need from me? What does this part need from me? And if you ask fear what it needs, and I've just, many, many people I've worked with, myself, many situations, if you really ask that scared place what it needs, the fear always needs acceptance, like just to accept that this is here, and a kind presence. It's like, imagine any child, what does a child most need? when they're afraid. They don't need a parent to say, oh, you're not afraid, there's nothing under the bed. They don't need to be persuaded that their fear is not reasonable. They need there to be room, allowing, okay, fear's here. And they need kindness. They need that kind of space of kindness. So what happens often to me is whenever I'm going to give a Dharma talk, it's almost every time, something will hit me that's the very thing I'm going to talk about that's not an easy thing to be with. So I I know when I'm about to do fear talks in some way I'm going to get gripped by something and sure enough, I was away this weekend giving a talk at a fearlessness conference up in New York, funny thing. (laughs) So I'm going to tell you two stories about fear that came up. The first one I'm going to tell you is about after the conference. This was done by Omega in, in Manhattan and they have about a thousand people that come to talk about how, to, how do we work with fear. Well, I, d- I went up there, did the conference, came back and I've had a really intense schedule and I got into one of those cycles where it didn't matter every time I tried to take a nap I could barely sleep and I just was feeling this increasing level of exhaustion. So um, on Monday afternoon I said, okay, this is it, I've got to just lie still and just you know, try to sleep because I have a, have a big week this week and so on. And every time I would start to drift off a little bit, the dogs would start barking. Every time. And, and it's like they'd, I'd j- be jarred awake and my first reaction would be this grip of fear because it's this sense of this vulnerability. It's kind of an existential vulnerability of if I don't get sleep, I cannot make it through this week. And then this anger, this like rage at the dogs. And then I kind of drift back again. And just as I was entering whatever that alpha beta st- state is, I don't know what they are, the dogs would bark again. So this, there, there was a number of rounds of this. You'd think I would have done something about it, but no, I didn't. 
But then I started saying, okay, this is fear. Let's get, let's just say this is what's happening right now. Fear's coming up. So I started getting really interested in just sensing because it was just an it was really a kind of this existential clutch. You know how if you wake up in the middle of the night and there's not like a story around it, but there's this just squeeze of fear. And then when I kind of settled, let myself feel it in my body, there was more of a story of this self that was not going to be able to make it through the week, that was going to fail, you know, that I wouldn't come up with a talk for tonight and I wouldn't be able to do the other, you know, I just, the failure thing, the self-doubt. So I started doing RAIN with it. I just kept investigating how it felt in my body and what did it need. And of course what it needed was just, it's okay that this is here. This is just here. It's okay. It's kind of like that bowing and saying yes to this. And the more I could just feel this squeeze in my heart of fear, just this kind of vulnerability, the more there was this kind of kind space that was just opening up, that was just being present with it. And gradually I found myself more inhabiting that kind space of presence and less identified with this kind of clutching, scared self. That's the N in RAIN. So recognize, allow, investigate, get intimate. And the more intimate we become with the fear, the less we're identified with the fearful self. Now, in Ajahn Chah's story, he stayed with it, stayed with it, took refuge in the Dharma, and he reflected on Buddha nature. Now his reflection, there's two different ways to reflect on Buddha nature, which is really the essence of what we are. One way in to really sense, to kind of break our story of self and really sense what we are, to wake out of the trance, is recognizing that we're not any of the things we're identified with. I'm not this fear, I'm not these sensations, I'm not these beliefs. And if we can see that, then there's this natural opening to the beingness, the vastness of what we are. You can inquire, you can even say, who is afraid right now? What is afraid? And begin to loosen that sense of a self that's so afraid. There's a second way I want to mention. Let's say you've been with the fear, you've been with the fear, how do you take refuge in the Buddha? A second way is to remember what you're forgetting, which is loving presence, to call on loving presence. Remember, when we're afraid, we're caught in the trance of separation. So the medicine for fear is remembering our belonging. Now it could be remembering our belonging to awareness itself, not being identified with one, one fragment of awareness, or it can be remembering our belonging to the love, the field of love that's here. There was a man who was very scared and he went to the Dalai Lama and asked for a meditation that might help him to relieve his fear. And the Dalai Lama said, no meditation, just imagine you're being held in the heart of the Buddha. That's taking refuge in Buddha nature. And what happens is when we're in trance, in other words, when we're caught in the body of fear, we're forgetting our belonging to the web of life. We forget that love is here. We forget those that love us and those that we love. The biochemistry of fear is very different from that biochemistry of really belonging, being the ocean, belonging, the unity. So one of the pathways, taking refuge in the Buddha, is intentionally calling on, remembering, in some way reconnecting with love. The Buddha said basically that our fear is great, but greater still is the truth of our connectedness. One woman described how when she was really, really afraid and she was doing rain, but it was too hard to be with the fear alone, she basically called on 
her allies and those were the people in her life that she felt that the love of the bodhisattva really uh, was like a current moving through them and she called on her grandmother and one of her best friends and a healer she knew so that she was sitting there being with the fear just the way I described with rain getting intimate with it but she felt her allies surrounding her sending energy of love into the fear I have found for myself that another way of taking refuge in Buddha nature because that's a way of taking refuge in Buddha nature she's calling on love she's letting it in another way for me is to imagine kind of a field of love around me and it's like I take the fear and I offer it into the field I'm not trying to get rid of the fear but I'm just saying okay surrender it into the truth of my belonging in other words it's like I'm taking it with two hands and and just offering it into the largeness that's here the bottom line is that sometimes fear feels like too much and as much as there's this kind of coaching to take refuge in the Dharma and be with it and open to it and lean into it there are times that that would be unwise and we can get re-traumatized so as an attitude that might be helpful just to have the intention the intention to befriend fear and yet go at a pace that's wise get support if you need it therapist, friend gradually recognize, allow investigate, get intimate whether you're on your own or you have the support will bring the freedom and the freedom is a shift in your sense of identity when we stop treading water when we stop racing away from fear and instead of resisting there's this real willingness to be intimate our whole experience of who we are shifts that rather than the self that's running, the self that's victimized, the self that's oppressed, we become that compassionate presence that's with the fear. We become the ocean that's with the waves. And one of my favorite understandings is that if you trust you're the ocean, you're not afraid of the waves. So I've mentioned taking refuge in the Dharma, in presence, in the Buddha calling on Buddha nature, seeing the emptiness, calling on the love I want to bring the third refuge in now, which is we're not meant to face fear alone that in a way there's a a kind of a delusion like like we're going to go and muscle up our awareness techniques and we're going to stand up and stay with that fear and deal with it and wrestle it down to the ground and you know do the job and it's not like that the truth is that we belong we're waking together we're waking up to realize our connectedness and it's in that sense of our togetherness that we really discover that we can handle the fear that we have room I'll tell you my next story about myself around the fearlessness conference which is one of my biggest fears is getting lost is going places where I don't know my way and getting lost and my second big fear is getting lost when I'm on my way to get a train or a plane (laughs) so I was on my way to this conference and I had to drive into Penn Station and catch a train and I was late and I was going a route where I came into town and went up 395 North many of you might be familiar with it but I wasn't sure how to get from 395 North to not Penn Station, Union Station and I got completely lost I mean totally lost so I landed up going the wrong way down Pennsylvania Avenue and going over the bridge into Anacostia and just like and there was a gridlock of traffic and I was just and my heart was racing and squeezed and I had 17 minutes and I had to park my car to get to the train so I was this was fear I mean, I was caught and I was in the trance of fear because I was down on myself I was cursing myself for it and I was doing things wrong and, the, you know, it was, it was terrible so then I, so I go to this gas station and I jumped out of my car and I probably looked like a scared person but, and this woman just kind of magically appeared she just paid for her gas and I, and I said, you know, how do I get to the train station and she said, oh, Han, I'll tell you what I'm not going that way but you just follow me and, and immediately I could feel my nervous system go, 
Uh, you know. And then another guy came along saying, is something going on here? You need some help? And he said, oh, I'll tell you to get there. And he gave me really clean directions. But he was so eager to comfort me and to tell me the way and to make sure I made my train. It was like he was on my team to get me to that train station. That my entire body, I could feel myself going like from this to, oh, okay, okay. So it's almost like it didn't, making the train, not making the train, it was more like I had company. I had company. I wasn't alone. There's research now that scans the brain and actually can show the difference when somebody is lying there. I think they did it on somebody that was getting intermittent shocks or something, but if somebody's holding their hand, the part of the brain for fight and flight that really shows the biochemistry of fear does not get as triggered. Even if it's a stranger and if it's a person they know, it's even more so. We create a resonant field when we're in our togetherness that has room for the fear. That our fear is great, but greater yet is the truth of our connectedness. And when we can tap into that connectedness, when we can trust the here we are together on a biochemical and on a psychological and a spiritual level, we re-inhabit a larger space and there's room for what's going on. After a vigorous brotherly and sisterly disagreement, our three children retired to be aroused at 2 a.m. by a terrific thunderstorm. Hearing an unusual noise upstairs, I called to find out what was going on. A little voice answered, We're in the closet forgiving each other. I often teach workshops on bringing rain, these practices of presence, to different emotions. And, and I did one, um, you know, over the years I've done a number on fear. And uh, one of the exercises I'll have people do is get into small groups and write down something that you're really afraid of and, you know, on a piece of paper, rip it up. Then in, and then in the small groups, the papers will get passed around and people read somebody else's. Nobody has an idea of who's written what. But after each person's read somebody else's fear, they will get into silence and everybody will try it on and feel it and just be with it and pause and just honor, okay, fear, recognize, allow. And then by the end they'll report out and the report is that there's a distinct shift from the sense of my fear to the fear. There's something incredibly liberating when we can even begin to get an inkling of not taking it personally. That this is sensations and emotions that move through these body-minds, that we're wired to have them, that we've got conditioning through our culture and our biographies to have it, that it's not our fault, that it doesn't reflect badly on us, that we're in it together, and that there is a way to wake up in the midst of it that the fear actually becomes a gateway to realizing the mystery and beauty of who we are. It's a gateway. So if we're willing not to run, if we're willing to stay, if we're willing to stay and just investigate and get intimate with it, sometimes on our own, sometimes with each other, sometimes by calling on loving presence, sometimes by saying, is this really me? Who is this? What is this? If we're willing to stay and inquire and be present, what is revealed is the awareness and love of our true nature. It's a gateway. So I'm speaking a bit now of the gift of fear when we bring a presence to it, the shift of identity. And in a way, as I I sometimes like to talk about the lion's roar in the Tibetan tradition that we think, we have this belief that something around the corner is going to be too much for us. There's this sense that something's going to happen. Ultimately it's death, but something's going to happen and we're not going to be able to handle it. So it keeps us hooked on trying to figure out and avoid the fear versus just dropping in. And what I've seen is that sometimes it's important not to go into the fear. If we've been traumatized, we really do need to go carefully. But more commonly, 
that if we take the chance and just pause and arrive, we find we can handle it. And what arises is a kind of confidence that we can handle our life. It's like if we're always living our life as if something's around the corner and we have to kind of defend or protect, we never get to really enjoy the spring that's here. We're too busy trying to control things. So in Tibet they call this the lion's roar, this sense that we can meet the fear and instead of running we can open and in that opening discover this openness and wakefulness that is the truth of who we are. This is the lion's roar. Ultimately, we long to live and love fully and it's only by facing what we run away from that we actually can arrive in that fullness. So I'd like to close with a short meditation. As you, as you know, I often like to take the theme and let us explore it together. And in a way, I consider this the most valuable thing. You've heard a lot of words. You might want to try, some, try it on. And again, it's short. But just to give you a chance to, to bring rain, to bring this presence to your inner life. And the invitation is to begin with a conscious pause. Just stop and be here. and just in a receptive way, sense if there's anything going on in your life that wants your attention, that might bring up anxiety or fear. And take your time, there might not be anything, in which case you can bring a continued intimate presence to just the experience moment to moment. But if there's something going on, something that's coming up that you're anxious about, a situation with another person maybe, maybe something someone else that's close to you is going through. Maybe even without thinking of a situation you just feel your body right now and feel your heart and sense the kind of the habit, the kind of clutch that we often have and don't notice because we're lost in thought. If there's a situation, you might exaggerate it a little and sense what really you're afraid of, what you're believing might go wrong. So we begin by just recognizing and allowing, okay, so there's fear here. It might be just a a glimpse of it because it's hard to sometimes command it to come forth on a moment's notice or it might be really you can feel it, but just to recognize and allow, that's the beginning. You might even, some people say, they just say hello to it, that there's some way in which just hello or bow Okay, this is here. And the next part of RAIN is just to begin to investigate, sense what it's like in your body, feel where it lives. If it helps, breathe with it a little. Breathe in and let your breath touch where the fear is. And if it helps to put your hand on your heart or your throat or where you feel fear, just to keep presence with it, with your touch, that can be helpful too. So you begin to investigate, what's this like? What's happening? You might inquire again, what am I believing? And feel where that belief lives in your body. 
to investigate and bring an intimate attention. See if you can bring a quality of warmth, a gentleness, kindness. And if the fear is real strong, you might sense where love is in your life and feel that the energy and presence of loving beings are helping to hold the fear, to be with the fear. For some, you might sense, who is it that's really afraid? Sensing that this fear is not my true nature. It's a current in the ocean. It doesn't define me. For some, a sense of offering the fear into the beloved, into the heart of the beloved as if you could take it with two hands and gently just offer. Still feeling it, but offering. And as you let this gentle presence continue with where the vulnerability is, just sense that you are that presence that the truth and fullness of who you are is that tender, awake space. When you trust this oceanness, it changes the relationship with the waves. When we can rest in this awake, changeless awareness, this tender awareness, then as Rilke puts it, we can contain death, the whole of death. We can hold it in our hearts, gentle, and not refuse to go on living. We can be here for this spring. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.